If you have a copy of your scriptures, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 16. Please make your way there. Romans 16, again, it's the last three verses. If you do not have a copy of the text, the verses will be on the screen for us. Um, only one slide tonight. I know that's uncommon for Eternal City Church messages, sermons, but only one slide for us this evening. We'll be finishing the letter of the Romans tonight, and for the next several weeks, just to give us a a lay of the land of what's happening, we will be taking some time, as we have done over different points and different periods in Romans, and stopping to do some topical messages based on some themes that have been uncovered in Romans. We'll start that next week with Justin preaching. We'll do that for several weeks, and that will ultimately take us into um, a time of Thanksgiving, and then ultimately our time of Advent through December. Coming into the new year, just to kind of give everyone the lay of the land, Lord willing, when we reach 2023, we'll be getting a study through the book of Genesis. Um, So hopefully you can begin reading and studying that book now as you prepare for it. We'll be not going verse by verse as we have through other books, simply because it's 50 chapters and it's a lot of stuff and we would be there for five years. So we're going to spend some time hitting some highlights, going through overviews of Genesis And so I would encourage all of you, even now as you're planning for your daily scripture readings and your times in scripture, that you would be studying through and looking through the book of Genesis to prepare yourself for that. So hopefully there's been enough time. Everybody can get to Romans chapter 16 or follow on the screen. Starting in verse 25, I'll read, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Every week, one of the elders stands up here and preaches a sermon. Each of us has our own style. Each of us has our own approach. Each of us has our own way of preparing for these things. But the, the methods we use while they're different, the goals typically are the same. We're desiring to help all of you gain a better understanding of a passage of scripture that you would have and leave from this time with a greater love for Jesus, a greater love for Christ, and that you would take what's learned and then, and then walk in that way. All of us kind of have that same objective, that same goal. Sometimes the text makes that easy for us. We've seen it in Romans. You go to different sections of Romans and you read through that scripture and it's like Paul just lays out very logical, very clear arguments for how he wants to present whatever it is he's presenting, whatever theme or topic that is. Those types of paragraphs are very structured, very organized, very easy to follow. Then we come to these verses. And as I read them, or as you read them in your scriptures, if you thought, what in the world is Paul talking about? Where is he going with this? You're not, it's not abnormal. Why? Because the structure of this is very different than other structures, than other passages that he's written throughout Romans. Really what we have in verses 25 to 27 is a very incomplete kind of run-on sentence where it seems like he's adding pieces and things as he goes along. 
It's not as structured and detailed as it normally is, but what we lack in structure, Paul more than makes up for in content. So I think what we'll see in these three verses is this wonderful reflection on who God is. If you have a copy of scriptures, it probably has a title in there that says doxology. This is Paul's worship. This is Paul's praise to God at the end of arguably the greatest letter ever written. So our golden night, sometimes when we prepare sermons or go through texts, our goal is to give you things to walk away with in terms of practical application. Go do this. Scripture gives a command, go do that command. Our goal tonight is not to walk away with a set of commands to follow or some type of argument to ponder or think about. The the goal isn't, as you may have heard other sermons, not necessarily here, but in other places, here's three steps to be a better Christian, here's five truths to help you get through the week. We're not going to end with five truths. We're not going to end with three ways. We're going to end with one thing. We have a God who is amazing. Our goal tonight is to walk away from the book of Romans, how Paul leaves us in the book of Romans. And that is, we have a God who is amazing. And so we bring into this time all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our concerns, discouragements, distractions, hurts, pains. And we're not going to walk away with, here's tips and tricks to address all of those things. Prayerfully, we'll walk away with, here's a God who is greater than all of those things. If we could summarize the verses to one main theme or one main premise, I would say it's this. It's the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ is magnified in us because of the gospel. The glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ is magnified in us because of the gospel. Perhaps this is a familiar truth for you, something that you are, that has been commonplace, you've thought of, or you have been, you've heard this concept before, but it's a deep and a profound one. Even though it's simple, it is deep. And so what we want to do is kind of unpack what that means, but what I want to do before we unpack it is to understand what I'm not saying in that. Notice first, The glory of God is magnified in us. It's not that the glory of God is granted by us. It's a very different thing. And we have to make sure we have that distinct. God is glorious. His glory is present regardless of anything we do. He is glorious because of who he is. Not because of anything we have done to grant him that glory. Very different things. God is glorious because of who he is in the same way that God is love and God is all knowing and God is all powerful. Any other attribute that God is, he is glorious. Now we see his glory through the person of Jesus. Remember the glory of God revealed in Jesus. We see the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So we can meditate on his glory. We can read about his glory We can praise him for his glory, and we can even, in a sense, participate in his glory now and more fully when we are with him one day. But we can't grant him glory because he's already full of glory. 
Second thing that it is not is, it is not that the glory of God magnifies us. But instead, the glory of God is magnified. That is, it's made to look great in us because of the gospel. We can get these ideas that because we are valuable to God, which is a true statement, God values us. And we are made in the image of God, also a true statement that is very clear, Genesis chapter 1. We get this idea that life and salvation then is about us, when in reality, salvation and life is about God. It's so easy for us to to take ourselves and put us at the center of everything, when in reality, God is at the center of all things, and we get to enjoy the glory of God from him. He's still the center of life. He's still the center of salvation. So the glory of God is part of who he is. We see it in Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. It's revealed through him. It's, it's that idea if you wear glasses or you have contacts, if you were to take the glasses off, what do you see? Typically blurred images. Stuff isn't, isn't really clear. You kind of see it, but then when you put the glasses on, it becomes fully clear. It becomes revealed. In the same way, Jesus reveals the glory of God. And it's magnified. The glory of God is magnified. That is, it's enhanced. It's more easily seen when we are transformed by the gospel. And in faith, as we pursue Christ and we find our joy and our satisfaction in him, the glory of God is made to look greater. If you've ever looked in a telescope, you kind of have this picture, you have this idea. If you were to look at the moon when the sun is down, you can see the moon and you can see some details of it. But if you were to take a telescope and point it at the moon and look through that telescope, you all of a sudden see all the little details of all the little nuances that's on the moon. In the same way, when we are in Christ and we are growing in him and we are transformed by the gospel, that that glory that was just kind of vaguely seen, now people see the details of it because they see it in us. So for the remainder of their time, what I want to do is walk through these three verses Specifically focusing on one phrase. That's all we're going to do. Look at one phrase. There's, we could go into 17 different, 17 different areas because there's multiple different categories, but we only have time for one. And I want to do that focusing on one phrase to unpack that main theme that the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ is magnified in us because of the gospel. And my prayer, hopefully your prayer, is that at the end of it, we walk away more amazed and more love with our God. The phrase we read it in verse 25, it's the very opening phrase that Paul gives us. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. I want us to sit here for a moment because these things seem very obvious. But when we unpack it, I think we'll see how wonderful a statement that actually is, especially in the context of Romans. The complete thought, for those of you who weren't able to follow along with Paul's kind of jumbled sentence here, the complete thought that he makes is, now to him who's able to strengthen you, verse 25, then go all the way down to verse 27, be glory forevermore. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore. 
The word translated strengthens means to set fast or to make firm. We live in the Steel City. If you were to drive a few miles down the road and land yourself in Braddock, there's a steel mill there. If we went and we walked through that steel mill and we toured it, we would see the process of how steel is made. We would see metals being heated to extreme temperatures, cast into whatever shape is needed, and then whenever they are made, whenever they cool off, whatever shape that is, it could be a beam, it could be a sheet, could be whatever it is, it's solid. It's set. You can take that steel and you can build buildings out of it. You can build structures out of it. You can do a lot of different things with it. The thing you're probably not going to be able to do is bend it because it is firm. It is set. It is strong. That's what the gospel does to us. It, it says you are strengthened. That is, you are set. You are firm. We see Paul kind of add some words to this where he says, you are strengthened according to my gospel. The words according to really describe the means through which God does this. How does God strengthen us? He strengthens us through the gospel. There's a lot of references to Romans 1. Actually, if you have a discussion guide, some of them will be called out in there. There's a lot of references in Romans 1 in this doxology. Romans 1.11, Paul tells us that the Romans, to the Romans, that he wishes to impart them some spiritual gift. Why? So that he could strengthen them. This is what Paul's talking about. This strengthening is through the gospel. Romans 1.16, a very familiar verse, calls the gospel the power of God to salvation. So the source of our spiritual strength, how we grow spiritually, is through the gospel, by the power of God in the gospel. You know, at the end of this incredible letter, like I said, many describe it as the greatest letter ever written. Paul speaks this doxology. He, he speaks this praise and this worship to God. And if we take a step back for a moment and think about it, he could have highlighted any other attribute of God. He mentions some of them. He talks about the wisdom of God. He talks about God's, God's eternality and God's plan. That could have been his emphasis. He could have done anything he wanted in saying, praise God for X. But what does he highlight? At the end of this letter, he highlights not God's omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness, his all-knowingness, not his eternality. The focus of his message in these verses at the end of this letter is to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forever. All the stuff Paul could have mentioned and does mention in this verse all leads us to focus on the fact that God strengthens us. That's how he ends this letter. To highlight that God is able to strengthen you through the gospel. You know, many, many rulers throughout history have come into power ultimately to desire glory. They, they desire some level of power, some level of glory. And if we went around the room and we asked you to name some of those rulers, name some of those dictators and, des and describe some of them. We can even, there's some even in the world today. You can go to North Korea and look at Kim Jong-un. You go to Venezuela with Nicolas Maduro. 
Go back a few years, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Go back years and years and years, and you've got all of these people through all periods of time, all committing these, these atrocious things because they want to rule and have power and be over people. How do they obtain that power? They obtain it by stepping on the backs of other people. The biggest threat to a dictator is people who are powerful. So you, you oppress everyone, you hold them down so that you can maintain your power and your superiority in whatever little kingdom you're developing. There have been dozens of leaders throughout all the world who in their pursuit of power and their pursuit of glory just step on the backs of other people. Keep the people weak, keep the people dumb, Make sure that they don't have the ability to rise up and overpower you. They have no right to this. Any, any dictator, any ruler that has ever done this, they have no right to do it. They have no right to take people created in the image of God and step all over them and oppress them. Yet they do it for their own good purposes and to exalt themselves. The ironic thing, though, is There is one king who has every single right in this universe to walk on the backs of rebellious people, and yet he chooses not to. The ultimate supreme creator of the universe, totally sufficient in himself, father, son, and spirit, he depends on nothing for his existence. He builds a paradise that he has created with the very words that he speaks. He puts his own image into people and says, tend to this world, multiply this world. I've given you all of these things. And yet those people turn around and spit in his face. That king has every right to trample those people. That's us. We're the people. He has every right to step on our backs, to exalt himself and make himself great. we would expect a response from a God like this to be either total destruction or total oppression. It's like if you've ever seen the the Harry Potter movies or read the books, I don't remember how the books depict this, but there's a scene in some of the later movies where Voldemort, he's the bad guy, he he comes to power again and he's taken over the, the Ministry of Magic. And they had this statue in the atrium and there's... At the top of the statue, there's, a, I believe it's a witch and a wizard. I think it's a witch and a wizard at the top. What's underneath of it for all my Potter heads in the room? Muggles, the non-magical people. He's, he's standing on top. These witch and wizard are standing on top of the backs, crushing all of these non-magical people to show this distinction that rising to power, the magical people are going to oppress and push down all of the others who aren't the same. Because we're going to be greater than all these people that we're going to crush under our feet. That's what God could do, and he's very just in doing it, if he so chose to. But what does Paul say? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore. He magnifies and enhances his glory, not by stepping on the backs of his people that have rebelled against him, but by exalting them. 
by strengthening us through the gospel. It's the exact opposite of the statue in Harry Potter or the works of dictators throughout all of history because unlike them, God isn't threatened when we're strengthened. God isn't threatened by our strength at all. In fact, when we are strengthened in the gospel, when we grow in faith and we grow in hope and we grow in love, God looks greater. He magnifies his glory by making his people strong. Paul describes the gospel in verse 25. He says it's the preaching of Jesus Christ. The substance of the strength God gives us is faith in Jesus. Paul doesn't really provide any explanation of that because he spent the first eight chapters of this letter talking about that. That Jesus Christ is the central reality of the gospel. That the good news for us is that the person of Jesus who sacrificed his life in our place and for our sins, in that person is where we find forgiveness, where we find love and where we find compassion. And we we see all that at a point in time when we come to Christ, but we see it each and every day through all of the different things that we go through. 2 Peter 1 tells us that God's power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Paul continues to unpack these things when he says that Jesus, that in Jesus there's this revelation of of this mystery. From Romans, we know that the mystery Paul mentions is that the Gentiles now through faith in Christ can be part of the people of God. Romans chapter 9 through 11, unpack that and you will learn much about what that mystery is. Paul says in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus. So the gospel that strengthens us is the same gospel that previously was a mystery and has now been revealed in the person of Jesus. So what he's doing is he's, he's placing the gospel as a, in the foundation of eternity. This is not some afterthought to God. The gospel is not just something that he came up with on the fly because he needed a solution to a problem. His plan to reveal the gospel through Jesus, to save you, to strengthen you, is a gospel that was planned before the foundation of the world. His plan to save you, his plan to strengthen you in salvation, and his plan to strengthen you tomorrow with everything you need for life and godliness was founded before the foundation of the world. This plan, the revelation of the gospel, it's also rooted in history because he says right after that that the The revelation of the mystery was kept secret, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all nations. In other words, the very writings of the Old Testament that were obscure about the coming of the gospel, Paul and the other apostles are now using those scriptures, using that text to reveal and explain the gospel. Before Christ, when someone would read the Old Testament, it was like reading with blinders on. They couldn't see the full picture. Paul actually describes this 2 Corinthians 3 by saying that there was a veil over the glory of God. But now through Jesus, the veil has been removed. And so we behold the glory of God for all that it is. So the gospel's there in the Old Testament. We're going to see that when we get to Genesis in a few months. The gospel's there in the Old Testament, but it was 
blinded. So now the gospel and all the glory that comes along with that in the person of Jesus has been revealed. It's rooted in history where God took this eternal plan and he worked it out through the course of time. So that Jesus arrived on the scene exactly when he was supposed to. Not randomly. Not at some point in time where Jesus was like, all right, I'm ready to go now. But in a perfect point in time that God designated. Perhaps you've never thought of this. Maybe you have. If you can imagine with me a time where travel wasn't as easy as it is today. All the Uganda trip aside, because that's not easy travel. But go back in a time with me where travel wasn't so easy. Go back to a time, think ancient Israel, where that's located, where everyone's walking, everyone's traveling. Some people use boats, some people use animals of some kind. But the whole known world when Jesus Christ was born, the whole known world was Spain to India and Northern Africa. There were people in all the other places, but it was uncivilized. It wasn't part of the world as it was known then. Anything anything outside of those Spain to India, North Africa was considered unexplored, uncivilized places. If a person, when Christ was born, needed to travel from Rome to Egypt, they needed to pass through one place, Israel. If someone wanted to go from Egypt to India, they needed to pass through one place, Israel. They had to pass through the land the size, roughly the size of the state of New Jersey. Do you think it's a coincidence that God chooses Abraham, leads him and his family away from where they lived, and through generation after generation after generation, creates a nation to occupy this area, and he gives only them the message of a a coming Messiah. That the one place in the world where everyone needed to pass through was the one place that had the truth of who God was. You think that was an accident? Think that was coincidental? No, God, God is working out all of this stuff, centrally locating, even geographically, where his people would be, so that at the right point in time, Jesus could come and bring with him everything that we have. All of those people passing through that area or why when we read the Gospels, Jesus interacts with so many different people from so many different places. It's why when you come to Acts 2 and Jesus has already ascended and Peter stands at the day of Pentecost, he's talking with dozens of different people from dozens of different places who all can hear him speak in their own language. Why? Because the entire world was passing through a tiny little strip of land about the size of New Jersey which was the one place that had the truth of who God was. God is working all of, things, all of these things out. It's not coincidental. Down to where people live, God has worked out his plan for how the gospel would fit into history because he has crafted this history. And just like he placed all of his people in that one place, he also, in his providence, scattered those people all across the world. So that 
What does he say? The gospel would be known to all nations. Rather than being coincidental, Paul says further in verse 26, he says that it's according to the command of the eternal God. For what purpose? To bring about the obedience of faith. We've talked about this idea of the obedience that comes from faith multiple times. Um, It's a major theme for Paul. Major theme in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 5, he actually talks about that his mission as an apostle is to bring to the Gentiles, to bring about in the Gentiles the obedience that comes from faith. So the, the gospel that strengthens us is the same gospel that strengthens us to live out this obedience that comes from faith. So when we live obediently, we do so to the glory of God so that the glory of God is magnified. And when we're faced with our temptations to sin and we, we don't, it's because the gospel has strengthened us to resist that temptation. You know, broadly, we experience temptations that I think all of us can relate to. We experience temptations towards lust, towards unrighteousness, towards um, some, some level of unrighteous anger, to gossip, to laziness, wastefulness. Those are some common categories we use when we're most tempted. We might become tempted toward vanity, and so we become conceited. We start to act in pride over our friends and family, and we, we believe ourselves to be better than them. We're tempted towards gossip, and so we, we start talking behind people's backs about other people, and not in a healthy way, but in a way that really destroys them in a deconstructive way. So we have these, these general categories of sin, but then we know individually we have our own struggles and temptations towards certain things. In the gospel, God gives us the power and the strength to resist those temptations to sin. And not just the broad generic ones, but the specific things that I struggle with, the specific things that you struggle with, God gives us the power in the gospel to Say no to sin. And let that be a reminder for us. We never outgrow the gospel. It's easy to think that the gospel saves us and then I have to figure out this obedience thing and I have to figure out this whole life without it, but we never outgrow the gospel. It's never like we believe the gospel and then go just try to figure things out. We don't take the power of the gospel for salvation and then leave it behind to pursue something else that would make us stronger. It's the very gospel that saves us that is the very gospel that empowers us to fight against sin, to grow in our faith. So all of these things we've been talking about really feed into and provide a foundation for the premise that we started with, that the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ is magnified in us because of the gospel. We see that primarily with what Paul makes primary, that glory belongs to the one who strengthens us through the gospel. That as as God lifts us up, his glory is made to look greater, just like when you look through a telescope and see the moon. It's appropriate at this point then to wonder, so what? What does that matter? I'll see that answer that question, what does, it, what does it matter by asking a different question? What does it look like to be strengthened by the gospel? 
What does it matter? What does it, what does it look like to have the gospel poured into us, not just in a saving way, but in an empowering way where I can walk through life now as a Christian feeling strong about not only my position in Christ, but how I'm going to manage my day. I'll seek to answer that question in two ways. First, I want us to consider how the world views the idea of being strong, the idea of strength. Then I want us to consider an alternative based on what we've seen in Paul's words tonight. I want to say at the outset, before we get into the world's perspective of strength, I want us to understand that the definitions of this and how it's portrayed in the world, how it's portrayed in our culture and in our society, it's very time-bound. What does is, what is strong look like today is different than what it looked like 50 years ago. It's different than what it looked like 15 years ago. And it will be different 10 years from now when people try to describe these things or portray them in our culture and in our society. It's very time-bound, and I will say this. It's seeking to address a problem. The world sees a problem out there and says, how do we fix it? And tries to throw solutions at it to fix things for how to encourage people, how to empower people, how to make people feel stronger. These things will look differently between cultures, between ethnicities. And so we want to recognize that. That the things that we'll describe about how the world handles this concept of what looks strong isn't going to be 100% wrong. It's not going to be 100% right. It's a man-made attempt at a solution to fix a problem that's perceived. The problem, though, with any man-made solution is that the foundation is always bad. And if the foundation is bad, the whole structure crumbles. If... I brought somebody up here and I had a deck of cards and I split the deck of cards and I said, we're going to build one of those pyramids out of cards. The difference is I get a table to build it on and you get a ball to build it on. I give you a basketball, I get a table. Who's probably going to do a better job at building this pyramid? Me. Because I have a table, I have something flat, I have something to build this on, on a flat surface. You have a ball that if it rolls any particular way, your whole thing's falling over. That's, that's the similar idea. Our foundation, when we review any topic, any worldview idea, anything related to how the world views things, our foundation is scripture, our foundation is God, and it is firm and it is solid. The foundation the world uses in man-made solutions is like a ball that's going to roll all over the place where you have No way of holding up. It's a house of cards. It's going to crumble. So if I were to ask you, how does the world define strength and what does it look like? There's a lot of different places you could go. Many of you, I think, would go to some level of physical strength. Whether it's through sports, you look at players on a football field and you're like, that dude's strong. You go and look at Joel Embiid, favorite basketball player in the world, best basketball player in the world, seven foot, 290 pounds. The guy's jacked. He is strong. A lot of us go to physical strength. We can, I think, rule that out primarily because Paul's focus here is really internal strength from the gospel. So when we think of these categories of 
how does the world view strength? I don't think we want to head into the physical realm because Paul's really talking about internal spiritual strength. So then that takes us to what does an internally strong person look like? If you searched on Google, what is a strong person? You would get things like they're determined, they're confident, they're powerful, they're resolved, they're tough. And if we go through that list, it seems okay. Nothing too bad about any of that. Determined, confident, powerful, resolved, tough. Kind of vague, but overall, okay. Nothing too much to complain about. Now, if we, if we narrowed this from what does a strong person look like and we broke it into gender categories, which we're going to do, the world won't do that because they don't like that, but that's a different time for a different place and a different sermon. And we were to ask, what does a strong, independent woman look like? Again, the world's trying to solve a problem that they perceive to be out there. So society is saying women have been held down for a long time, and so now we need to champion strong, independent women. Fair. I, I value strong women. I think having strong women in the church is a good thing. But if we went down the Google path again to what is a strong woman, we would find some similar descriptions like confident, determined. We would also begin to find examples and descriptions of aggressive, assertive, influential, powerful. And and the world has taken this idea of strong, independent woman and has portrayed it in two different ways. The first is a successful woman who has worked her way up to achieve greatness, finding strength within themselves, and then going to achieve greatness because of the strength they find in themselves as a woman. The second way we see this portrayed, primarily in the forms of television and movies, showcases strong women in a very negative way, if we break it down. Not advocating for this, but if you were to go spend time watching reality television you would see a lot of strong women. But you would see a lot of strong women who are aggressive, they're stabbing people in the back, they're leveraging their bodies to hold power and influence over men. And that's not every way the world does it, but that is primarily how you see women portrayed as strong and independent in television and movies. That's not the strength that Paul's describing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul tells women... To be like Sarah, and he says, you are her children if you do good and, you do, and do not fear anything that is frightening. A strong woman is not someone who is aggressive in order to fit into a man's world, flaunts their sexuality to attract and control men. Women, you are strong when you are so confident in God that you are his, a daughter of the king of the universe, that you fear nothing but God alone. That is a strong woman. Proverbs 31 says that strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the things to come. That strength that no matter what life throws at you, you are so confident in God that you can laugh in the face of uncertainty. A strong woman is the one who struggles with depression and wakes up every morning to take care of her family. That's a strong woman. A strong woman is someone who, in the face of sickness, does not fear pain or death, but rests in the comforting arms of God 
and exalts him for who he is, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain. A strong woman is someone who fights for sobriety when it would be so easy to give in to the temptations to be intoxicated. That is a strong woman. A strong woman is one who protects and loves her children and will fight for them no matter what. The stuff the world has for women to find strength in, this aggressiveness, assertiveness, this, it's all fleeting. Sexual power over men, that will go away. Being influential in, power, in positions of power, that will fade. Because all of that stuff is built on a bad foundation. It will ultimately crumble. Being confident in a God that has strengthened you by the gospel, that will last for eternity. Men, if we were to do the same exact exercise, our world sees strength in men in a few ways. Primarily through physical strength, but we've already discounted that for our time. But there's been this kind of disturbing trend within our world, particularly among men, particularly among young men, that they feel like they're marginalized in our society. And so they've reacted poorly to it to say, we need to fix this problem by being more aggressive and more assertive and, and place ourselves back at the top of the food chain, so to speak. And what it ends up becoming is oppressive and dominant towards women specifically. So the idea in the world is that men need to be dominant because our culture has tried to emasculate men. And I think there's a sense where our culture has tried to emasculate men. Again, another message for another time. But what the culture is trying to do in, in this, the, the culture that we're describing is that men need to be tough, reassert themselves, to become dominant. Can I say that that is a foolish pursuit of power? That if, if a man's pursuit of strength in this way where it is, it is oppressive and it is domineering and it is crushing other people, it is a foolish pursuit. The gospel is the power that strengthens you not to oppress other people, not to push down other people, not to dominate other people, but to lead other people well. A strong man is someone who leads his family, that points them to Jesus, even when it's challenging, even when it's hard. A strong man is one who, who corrals the kids together and says, we're going to spend some time reading God's word and praying, even though it means it's going to be 10 minutes of just fighting them constantly. The power to live out the commitment you made to your wife to be faithful to care for her in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, to remain faithful to her intimately, to remain faithful to her in your marriage. A strong man is someone who stands up for what is wrong, stands up for what is unjust and presses forward even when they're depressed and they're discouraged. That's the strength of a real man, someone who is set fast when it seems easier to run away. A fool pursues power and strength by just trying to dominate other people. A weak man runs away when things are too hard, but a strong man is set fast and is going to pursue what is good and what is right, even when it's difficult. Who's going to care for his family, even when it's hard. 
The glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ is magnified in us because of the gospel. Paul says it at the end here, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore. God gives us power to live out the gospel and be strong women and strong men who face down the adversities of life with confidence because of what he's done for us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the one who strengthens us with the gospel. And because of that, we can say to God be the glory and may his name be glorified throughout all nations.